Welcome to the Wine Invest Podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. Now, it can be a hard time of life as you bridge the gap between university and the workplace. The job market is increasingly competitive, applicants outnumber places, and employers want to see more than just grades and pint-pulling experience. And the interesting part of this dynamic is there is a huge demand from companies for bright young talent to work on ad hoc projects. Behold, UniBees was born. UniBees is a platform developed by my guests this week, Chris Keenan and James Parsons. The aim is to connect said employers with talent from universities on a project-by-project basis. Now, the more I read about UniBees, the more I loved the proposition, which I'll let Chris and James introduce. We also discuss managing growth, building teams, raising capital, and developing a coherent marketing message. As usual, if you have any questions for Chris or James, then do get in touch at whyinvest at waverton.co.uk. But without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. James Parsons and Chris Keenan, welcome to the podcast. James, how did you start your career? So in my career, I started, I was a graduate. I took a job in the city back in 99, and that was in pure recruitment, recruiting project managers into the big banks. And by 2003, I kind of understood what I was doing. I was far more interested in technology. So I established Arrows Group, and that was a pure business, which was building big technology teams and deploying them into banks, but also media companies to help them deploy what in those days was infrastructure and big infrastructure projects, which quickly became over the years, big product deliveries. And over those years, you know, Arrows Group grew up to an international business over 350 people across eight or nine countries, which was a hell of a journey from 25 when we set it up and learned lots along the way, had a few scars as well to prove it. And we did a, an MBO in 2016, at the end of 2016, and I'm now still chairman at Arrows. But since then, I've been focusing on investing and working with companies in tech, mainly with a strong social purpose as well. And that's how I met up with Chris and, uh, and we got interested in, in looking at UniBees and what we could do with that. Well, Chris, we'll come on to how you met James. But Chris, how did you start your career? Well, rather like James, I suppose I had a traditional route in that it was O-levels, A-levels, off to university, did a degree in economics and finance. And basically, the writing there was to either go into accounting, insurance or law. And I say, fortunately, I was blown off course by a summer job that I had at Sky Television at the time. And that, fortunately for me, offered a completely different route. And I ended up joining Sky News. And I started there as a trainee sound man and then graduated on to become a cameraman and traveled the world for seven years, which was an incredible experience and not something that I had ever expected. From there, I went on to work with BBC, ITV, Channel 4, became a director of photography, and then started building brand content and became an executive producer. I have the accolade that I actually produced the first ever product placement show for Channel 4, which was uh, a show called Baking Mad, of all things, about baking. Before the very British Bake Off. Before the, of course, yeah. No, we were the trailblazers, which was great fun. I really enjoyed it. And food became a bit of a passion of mine. And I became one of the founding members of a company called lovefood.com. It was a joint venture. It didn't grow quite as quickly as I'd envisaged. And I took my leave from there to actually go and join a company in advertising, 
which I did for five years. And this was much more of a traditional corporate role where, you know, I was running the business, raising capital, building clients, and so on. But that ran its course. And, you know, come summer of 2019, I was ready for a new challenge. And we looked at Unibis. And so we're going to introduce Unibis in a sec. And I want to know, how did you two meet? What was the sort of start of the relationship? So we both had children at the same school. To cut a long story short, that's how we met. It was the school gates. Literally at the school gates, yeah. So that was the genesis of what was to become Unibees. And how do you think your skill sets complement each other? Presumably that was quite a difficult thing to establish at the school gates, or was it? Perhaps it wasn't. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, in actual fact, I mean, James and I didn't know each other particularly well at the time that the idea of Unibees came about. But I recognised that although I had lots of ideas and, and lots of passion for a project, what I didn't have at the time was any recruitment experience and certainly no experience in digital and building platforms. And therefore, I, I approached James, first of all, to just ask him, what, what do you think of this idea? And little did I know where it was going to lead to. Well, let's introduce Unibees. Let's start, if we can, with a sort of an idiot's guide to what Unibees does. What's the problem that it's trying to solve? Unibees connects the 3 million undergraduates with employers. And the problem that it's solving is, at the moment, it's a fractured environment for Gen Z, i.e. the future workforce of the UK, to access employers. If you're an Ivy League top half percent graduate from one of the Russell groups, you get a very easy access into the top tier one investment banks. But you are literally circa 1% to 2% of that population. So you have the vast majority of students who have incurred a huge amount of debt to complete their university career course. They have skills, you know, they're digital natives. They've got skills that companies are crying out for right now. If you open up a newspaper that you can't miss an article around the shortage of digital skills in the workplace. And so what Unibee solves is it connects seamlessly companies with that rich skills base of talent that is the future workforce. And if we are going to solve the digital skills problem, then this cohort, this generation are going to be the ones to solve it. And by doing that, it gives companies the opportunity to access skills today. So those digital skills we've spoken about, but also most importantly, create a first mover advantage in engaging that talent because competition for the best talent coming out of university is high. So through our platform, companies can do that. They can access skills, but also engage and pipeline talent for their future workforce. So if they're not using your platform, what are the sort of traditional routes that companies have to go through or hoops that companies have to go through to attract great talent? And I'm really thinking about that sort of second tier company. How do they attract graduates at the moment? I'll let Chris take part of this. What I will say is that the graduate recruitment model has not really evolved since I was a graduate back in 1999. It is still based upon a big assessment day criteria where Companies will meet numerous people through an assessment day structure and then they'll make offers and those graduates will join. The net net of that is that we've got a circa 50% withdrawal rate up within two years of those graduates in their first jobs. So it doesn't particularly work very effectively. And if you're one of those graduates coming through, you've got a number of fractured pathways to go through. You're either on a job board, you're either on a milk round or you're going through a specialist agency, all paths of which lead to being in that assessment day center rather than being practically assessed against your skill set on live project work that a company can actually get to know you on. Yeah, and I think I'd add to that is that, you know, for the second tier companies who are trying to access this cohort, it's not that easy in very simple terms. You know, they're likely that they're either a startup or a scale up 
They won't have the infrastructure that big businesses have. They don't necessarily know how to go about accessing directly through the universities or paying to go to the fairs and certainly not using recruitment agencies, which are just cost prohibitive. So in actual fact, what they're doing is they're looking instead into the marketplace in terms of how can we find these people in a more cost effective way. And, you know, this is really the solution that we're providing. And we're seeing, you know, a lot of our clients who are using the platform are exactly that. They're scale-ups and startups. This is manna from heaven for them because they get an opportunity to trial people, test them, employ them in that way. And then if they're good enough, they take them on permanent hire. And where do you see the sort of value proposition of Unibees? Is it in the sort of superior product, so investment in tech and an easy functional interface? Is it in your superior routes to market or is it in a superior team? Where do you see the sort of differentiation of the businesses that it is right now? I'll pick that up, James. I think it's all three. You know, I think from a tech perspective, we've created a platform. We haven't reinvented the wheel by any stretch. But what we've done is we've taken some component parts that makes life very, very easy for the three main protagonists, you know, the students, the employers, and also the universities who all have an unmet need. So by creating that that environment and that ecosystem, as James was saying, that gives us a sort of first mover advantage in the first instance. And what does your ideal client look like? And, and, you know, what skills are they looking for? And what would be the sort of perfect brief for Unibees to solve their problems? Well, I think our clients fit into two broad categories. First of all is transactional. So those will be companies that need skills right now. Mm -hmm. So all of those skills that Gen Z have that, companies are crying out for, whether it's in social media moderation, whether it's in sales and marketing, whether it's in digital data analytics, creative content, these skills bases that are demand for which is growing really highly. So first of all, the transactional companies, they just need access to those skills right now. They've used all of their common routes to market and they need access to that gig economy type style engagement. And then the strategic customers who sit in the other bucket these are companies that are normally larger. They're looking at Unibees that are ways to actually strategically plan their future workforce and build deep pools of talent in the highest demand skills areas. And they're looking at, at us really around how they can engage with this talent early on to ensure that they have that first move advantage for them later. Yeah, and I think I'll just add to that, James, is that the beauty of the platform is that we've created something that literally any business can use. So it doesn't matter if you're a one-man band who needs an extra pair of hands because things are getting a bit too busy. If you're a startup or a scale-up and you know that you've got to grow your team, you can do that. And equally, if you are an enterprise business who has you know, specific requirements around the number of graduates it needs every year, then we're the perfect place for them to come and have a look. You know, in addition to that, you know, we're talking about some of the USP factors that we may have. We've got a very, very strong female gender candidacy base running at just under 70%. And we have something in the region of 45% of black and minority ethnic groups. So in actual fact, the enterprise companies are coming and asking us that we're really keen to come and, and, and have a look and see some of the candidates that we may have missed in the usual course of how we normally go about our recruitment. You mentioned, James, you know, the milk round and the university recruitment or recruitment post-university industry hasn't really changed since you left university in 1999. It probably hasn't changed all that much since I left university in 2009. I wonder why now, why is there an opportunity now to change things, to disrupt things? And maybe you can answer by 
sort of setting out what the competitive landscape looks like. Like, who else is doing this? Are you killing the category of university recruitment or are you building a new category? We're definitely building a new category. I'd say if you take one step back and look at the labour market in general, especially for professional digital tech, professional services, the rise of the gig economy is being monopolised by big technology platforms that are marketplaces that connect the employer directly with the candidate or the worker. You can think about Upwork or Fiverr, the big listed ones, and they've demonstrated a model that there's a massive appetite for. And so with Unibees, what we're very openly doing is we're not, we're not reinventing a brand new marketplace. We're just taking a marketplace that really works for a professional market, and we are applying it to this, this undergraduate market. Because as that undergraduate market professionalizes due to the level of the applicable skills they have for the workplace, and secondly, their motivation to want to be able to work in career-enhancing roles rather than making coffee or pulling pints of beer to support the cost of their studies, then the marketplace that we're applying to this cohort, to this vertical, is proven, it works. And I think there's just been a lack of appreciation for this, you know, 3 million 19 to 22-year-old cohort as being actually a professional talent pool. But actually, if you look at loads of the big brands around the world, they've been taking advantage of this skills base for years in terms of free apprenticeships or free internships or having people do pre-full-time work, you know, projects for them. So I don't think it's too much of a leap to see how it can be applied. And I think the benefit of applying technology to this process just means that it's really scalable. I think I'd just add, if I may, Doug, we can't ignore the digital transformation that's taken place over the last 18 months, two years due to COVID. And actually, although the idea was created pre-COVID, you know, the one thing, I guess, in the back of my mind, certainly around the remote project angle of what we're doing, is were businesses set up for remote working? That is a cultural shift. And I guess we've been fortunate, if anyone can say that about COVID, in that businesses now readily embrace remote working. And we've got a cohort of students who are absolutely ideal to do that. So that's been certainly in terms of timeliness, that's definitely changed the landscape. And I wonder when you're thinking about marketing messages, it sounds like you essentially have two, broadly speaking, two categories of market. You know, you have the employees and you have the employers. Now, when you're thinking about the employees, how do you access that group? How do you access the 19 to 25-year-old market? How do you sell them the opportunity of using Unibees rather than just going to a normal recruitment website? Very simply, I think that Gen Z, firstly, they're very comfortable working through an app platform. They're information enabled, so therefore they're very keen to be able to learn more and have more control over any application process. And, you know, up till now, and I don't mind, we don't mind admitting it, the biggest 30% of our intake has been through TikTok. So the use of social media platforms has just dramatically reduced our cost of acquisition for that cohort. If you get the content right, get the messaging correct, then the ability to be able to reach out and get to university students is really high. It's a great market for that. You know, they're in a very centralized pool. It's constantly renewing by over half a million a year. And you've got very specific routes to market. So it then just comes down to having good brands with interesting and exciting work. But the biggest difference that our platform delivers for the student is that we've created a digital profile. And if you think it's like LinkedIn for students, as it's been likened to, if I'm a student, I'm able to build an interactive profile that every time I do work for any one of these brands, I get endorsed. It creates that employability and open any newspaper at the moment. It tends to be around 
lack of employability or the gap between a degree educated and work ready. So for us, as long as you know we've made good use of the tech, we've seen how good profiles work on other platforms, and we've made it really intuitive for the student to be able to build an employable profile that they can take to a would-be employer. They can demonstrate they've been endorsed and the skills that they have. And you know what? It's not pulling pints in the union for X pounds an hour. It's actually engaging with their future employers, potentially. Yeah. And I, I would just add, if I may, that um, you know we know traditionally that students have, have been able to work in the gig economy, and that's what they've done. And I think that when we did our initial research, you know, there were two main things that were at the forefront of undergraduates' minds that were important to them. One was earning money, and the second one was improving their career prospects for when they graduate. And I think that that's a really important message that we give through this platform. You can't go to another agency or another employer and find this kind of piecemeal project work that will actually improve their skills and pay them at the same time. So I think that's quite compelling. And word of mouth between the students also helps to drive people onto our platform. If people have had jobs and they've been paid for them and they've had a good experience and they've, they've understood a culture about a business and they relay this back to their peers, then it stands to reason that if it's good for one, it makes sense that it's good for a large number. I want to talk about your branding because, you know, you go onto your website and I would recommend our listeners do it, unibeeswithaz.com. Now, you go onto your website, the colors are bright, the messaging is clear, and it feels to me as though you have a very clear sense of your own brand. Now, I'm wondering, did you always have that? Was that it from the outset? Has that taken finessing? And are there any other brands that you really look up to and want to emulate while building your own? Well, I think we've done what most startups do is that we've we've probably built and torn up two or three versions of ourselves, you know, in the first in the first six months. That just tends to be the way it is. And you sounds very costly, James. Yeah, you bring in lots of tech and then and then you have to, you know, re-engineer the tech as you know, but there's no substitute for learning from the customers live. But yeah, the brand is pretty focused. It's got a very clear identity. It's a very particular audience that we're focusing on. And we actually have three, if you think we have three kind of stakeholders in there, we have our the candidates in the students, we have employers. Mm. Um, and we also have universities, which we haven't spoken about yet, but who are now, by the look of it, going to be measured on their employability in techs once students actually graduate. So they've mm. all got a kind of, we, we've got a stake with all of those constituent parts of the business. So, so yeah, it, it's very specific. The branding is quite clear. We've had to react to our customers and the students and, uh, and be able to measure that. The great thing about tech these days is that you get real-time measurement over the behavior on your platform. And I remember a moment that we had eight months, nine months ago, where we had a lot of people landing on a certain page and not going any further. We could jump on that straight away. And it's an evolving process. I think branding is, you know, it'd be very easy for us to go completely down the Gen Z route and, and, and try and emulate, for example, a Depop or something along those lines. But as James said, we've got two other stakeholders here. So it's important that we're inclusive in terms of how we message and what the branding looks like. And I think that's what we've sort of concentrated on today. And then brands you look up to, I mean, can you think of any, any brands that you think, hell yeah, I know what you're doing, I like what you're doing? Chris mentioned one, Depop's great. You know, it's managed to really capture the trust of a demographic and it's the same demographic that we're working with. So that's a great learning for us. In what Fiverr have done in a comparable platform is really, really interesting. They've managed to become the go-to platform and a trustable platform for, you know, freelancer, gig working across almost all all industry sectors now, which is not an easy thing to do. The beauty of both of those brands for Chris and I is that A, we, we really admire them, but B, you can learn so much from what they've done. They've had to spend so much in terms of their positioning and how they communicate. And 
and we're there to try and learn as much as we can and apply it to what we do. And I want to turn to fundraising because I know that you are um, in the middle of raising capital. I'm curious to know what, what doors so far have you been knocking on? Is this friends and family? Are you looking at angel investors? Are you going as far as thinking about venture capital? Yeah, it's one of those things that startup businesses have to spend a lot of time on. And therefore, you need a pretty sort of watertight strategy in terms of how you go about it. We're actually in our second seed raise. Our first seed raise, as you rightly pointed out, was very much friends and family. So people that we knew, people who invested in in James and I uh, as much as the business idea. And this round, what we've seen so far is we've had some high net worths that have joined this round, speaking to some angel investors. And we're also talking to some funds. And the reason we're doing that and some VCs, and the reason we're doing that on this round is because we know that the next round that we we undertake will probably be a Series A. And therefore, we will need or it'll be very useful to already have some parties engaged with us who are ready to follow their money in quite a big way. So that's kind of what we're doing. And we're, we're halfway through this raise. Uh, we're raising another million this time around. And, you know, we'll hopefully have that cleared off by the end of this month or, or beginning of the new year. And how does the messaging to each of those sort of cohorts differ? Are they looking for very different things from the business? And as a result, you have to sort of tweak your deck. Um, short answer is yes. When you're talking to early investors, that's quite an emotive message. It's about where we want to take it, why we want to do it there. It's, it's, it's built on passion. As you get further into the process and you start speaking to investors who, who have more experience, then you're down to more detail. So there's more number crunching. They definitely want to know what does the outlook look like? What's happening in the next three to five years? Have you thought about your exit strategy? So, you know, the questioning and the way in which you kind of deal with that, you have to be prepared for all eventualities Mm -hmm. because it can come from anybody who's investing in you. But certainly the level of detail increases as you move up the ladder a little bit. We find this in the public market space. You know, it's quite difficult to value companies that aren't generating meaningful profit, however, have the the opportunity in future to generate profit. And if you can plot with any degree of certainty a sort of trajectory of earnings with low or indeed negative interest rates, the value of those future earnings is much, much higher. So I'm wondering, how do you value or how do you approach the sort of valuation conundrum with a business like Unibees? Yeah, so there's two routes you can go down for a business like this. I mean, we can go down the traditional, okay, let's look at the EBITDA. You know, how is that going to perform over the next three to five years? What are the things that are going to influence that? And that's the traditional way that many investors would look at a business like ours. However, this is a tech business. And tech businesses and the way in which people look at them can be quite different. And we've seen that in recent years with valuations of some of the purchases that have been made. And there, in a situation, especially when you're building a marketplace, investors may be looking more at the lifetime value of, for example, on our side, the candidates on one side and the employers on the other, and take a view at that point that it's better for us to have a a larger cohort on both sides of our market at the expense of EBITDA in the early years. You know, we'll take guidance, certainly as we move forward over the next six to 12 months, on where our strategy lies and what we'll really be focusing on. So once, you know, assuming your next raise is successful, 
where would you like that capital to be allocated? And where is the equilibrium of the business as we sit here today? Do you want to invest more in products and technology? Do you want to invest more in marketing? Do you want to invest more in growing the team and therefore management? I'm wondering how are you going to make those capital allocations decisions when the funds come in? A business like this is very much built on the product. So the tech and the integrity of the tech and actually the functionality and what it's offering is absolutely vital because it almost becomes a marketing tool in itself. So for us, I think tech is always going to be first and foremost, not in a ridiculous way where, where some companies can just burn through and have a terrible burn rate just to get you know, what they believe is the best tech out there. We're very fortunate that we've got a very, very experienced product director who has built similar platforms to this in the past. He's got a great track record also of exiting the market at a very good valuation. So from our point of view, tech definitely is front and foremost, but then you can't build a business without the right people. The whole point is that the candidates themselves are really the asset. Once you've got the platform, the candidates are the asset, but then equally our team are very important in terms of how that functions. And of course, the marketing in terms of making sure we have the reach. So the short answer is that those are the three main areas in which a business like this will be spending its money and how that's allocated will depend on the exact strategy at the time. But there are three critical elements to the success. Well, let's look to the future. Where would you like to see the business in five years' time? And I want to pick up on something you said on, on lifetime value, because presumably the lifetime value of some of the users of your platform is huge. This is Gen Z. You're not looking after pensioners here. And they will presumably go on to be productive people in the workforce. And I'm curious to know, where else could you see the platform you know, helping them? I'll jump in on that. I think in five years' time, you know, if we've done our job right, this is the future of how all young people should get their first interaction with their ultimate employer. This is how the Gen Z are going to get their jobs in the future because it's so simple for all people on our platform to be able to access employers in a really information-rich way, get meaningful work, prove themselves in a practical way, and ultimately get the first job in their professional career. So in five years' time, it should be the go-to place for university undergraduates to create profiles and find their first job. That's the first part. But what I'll also add to that would be it's massively applicable internationally. Our job here is to really create the marketplace in the UK and demonstrate that it works. But if you think about if we were just to look at the English-speaking applicable university and college Commonwealth countries, for example, the opportunity to roll this out cross-border is really exciting. It's a tech platform, therefore a lot of the barriers to entry are lower. And finally, from me, before I pass over Chris, I think that what you pick up on is absolutely right. If you build a platform and a marketplace that's trusted by Gen Z as, as they go through the gears of graduating, getting their first work experience, being endorsed, and actually getting their first role, we're not going to have a hard stop on that trust equity. Mm. There's, there's an enormous amount of opportunity for us to be able to hang on to that really valuable cohort. The profiles that we're building and creating should be the profiles that everybody uses, whether they're on the platform or not, to forward to their prospective employer because they will be so data rich and they will have a really strong provenance of that person's background all the way through education. So gone are the days where you go, please send me a CV and some references and some of this. You won't have to do that. You just ping them a link and it'll be the Unibee's link and it'll be ubiquitous. I like this idea of, of lifetime value because and, and it's something I came across when looking at, at ByteDance, the, the owner of TikTok and you know, their target market is much, much younger. And you know, where would you rather put your money? Would you rather put your money with that cohort and you have this sort of long runway of value creation or a traditional platform like Facebook, which let's face it, is probably 
in its sunset stage of acquiring new users. I fully agree. I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And actually, you know, if we look at what success for us looks like uh, in five years' time, obviously James has spoken about Gen Z and that cohort. But actually success is that we become an integrated tool in almost every business in the UK as a starting point so that we're integrated. Therefore, as Gen Z grow and as their careers grow and as their skill base grows, they're still on our platform and they are absolutely wired in to every business in the UK. We become a a tool that businesses use in order to access this cohort. And therefore, as you rightly say, you know, in the long run, the lifetime value becomes kind of almost exponential. Mm -hmm. Well, it's an exciting prospect. Final question for you both. What advice would you give to our younger listeners who are perhaps coming out of school and university? Perhaps they're using your platform to get their first job, but are thinking about something entrepreneurial. What advice would you give to that sort of entrepreneurial cohort who want to sort of kick out and pursue something themselves? James, why don't you go first? I think the first piece of advice I'd give is not to give up after the fifth or sixth knockback. Starting up a business, if you listen to everybody who tells you that's not going to work, you're not going to get out of bed in the morning. That'd be the first thing. So I think it's all about the research at the beginning. You can never have done enough. And actually, I've probably been guilty enough. I, I may have been lucky with one or two businesses that I've luckily been able to see through where I didn't do as much research as I could have done. And you end up having to readjust your business model as you go along. I think have a good idea, stick by your guns, but also make sure you've researched it twice as much as you probably thought you would need to would be a relatively steady start, I would have thought. Good. Um, I'd add, I mean, obviously, the starting point for anyone who wants to set something up is that you've got to have the mindset that anything is possible. So therefore, you know, you take that mindset in with you. I think James is absolutely right. Do some research first. You know, a brilliant idea is not always going to succeed because you need to understand what the problem is and what you're solving. Expect some failures along the way. They will inevitably happen. But the way in which you deal with those failures, they actually become the building blocks of the decision making that you're going to do going forward. So it's part of the learning process. I'd also say try and work with good people and don't be too greedy along the way. Stand by your guns. Make sure you research the proposition and anything is possible. I like it. Chris Keenan, James Parsons, thank you for joining me. Our absolute pleasure. Thank you, Doug. Great to be here. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Wine Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guests this week, Chris Keenan and James Parsons from UniBees. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like us, subscribe to us, and let your friends and colleagues know. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.